What's up, hardcore humans? Welcome to another episode of the Hardcore Humanism Podcast. Today, we are talking with Grammy Award-winning musician, singer, and songwriter, Sean Colvin. You may know Sean from her hit songs like Sunny Come Home. It was wonderful to get the chance to talk with Sean again. Sean was actually one of the first artists I ever interviewed who was open about her struggles with mental health. The first time we spoke was back in 2014, where Sean shared her struggle with depression and alcoholism. And what was so striking was Sean's openness about how depression interfered with her engaging in basic life functioning. Just getting up in the morning could be an all-day task, if it ever happened at all. And the feedback I got on the interview was so powerful. People talked about how the stigma of mental illness had held them back from sharing their mental health issues with others, in some cases so much so that people didn't get treatment for their addiction and depression. And Sean sharing her story gave people hope that they could reach out and get the help and support they needed. And that feedback was ultimately one of the reasons my wife, Island and I decided to launch the Hardcore Humanism podcast. We saw the power of someone like Sean to not only change people's lives through music, but also through sharing personal stories of how they overcome barriers such as depression and addiction to pursue their authentic lives. Now, in the Hardcore Humanism therapy and coaching program, our goal is to help people find their purpose, work hard to achieve that purpose, and build a supportive community to help them lead an authentic and purpose-driven life. And in our conversation today, we talk a bit more in depth with Sean about how depression and alcoholism interfered with one of her purposes in life, which is to be a creative artist. Unfortunately for many people, the pandemic has exacerbated or even caused mental health issues with depression and substance use becoming even more prevalent in our society. Sean talks specifically about the regimen that she uses for her ongoing recovery, both from depression and alcoholism. And I want to highlight two aspects of her program that are so important for any of us to help manage our mental health. The first is Sean's mindset, which she describes as humility. Sean works to be continuously open to learning. This is so important as we face different stressors and struggles because as our circumstances and surroundings evolve, we need to evolve with them. And without that open-minded approach, it is tough for us to adapt to our ever-changing life. And the second is that she always tries to take some kind of action. That combination of being open-minded and taking action creates a dynamic, evolving approach to her life as she overcomes barriers and works to achieve her purpose. So let's hear what Sean has to say. So, Sean, welcome to the Hardcore Humanism Podcast. It's great to talk to you again. Thanks, Mike. You too. So, let's talk about first how you've been doing in the pandemic. You know, relatively speaking, I guess I've done okay or I'm doing okay. You know, I'm, I'm unemployed, and I think that's a big part of you know my mental health issues during this pandemic to be unemployed, which I haven't been for ah, uh, you know. As long as I can remember, I've done something and, you know, fearing for your life you know, amidst this deadly disease, this deadly virus. So, uh, I've, you know, I've had my struggles. I've come to understand them as time's gone on, but um, I kind of liken the whole thing to stages of grief, really. Um, that's helped me enormously to look at it that way and, and look at the mood swings that I have in terms of just going through stages of, of getting to an acceptance of something, which is nearly impossible, but that's how I'm looking at it to kind of keep my sanity 
Now, when you're talking about grief, do you mean, I'm assuming the loss of being able to actively engage in your career? Yeah, the loss of being able to, to have purpose. You take it for granted, I think, at least I did. And the loss of our sense of, uh, well, of normalcy, uh, safety. It's a, it's a whole new way of life, you know. Um, I live alone. And, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's been a, a lot of isolation. And, and there are sort of too many hours in the day, I find, given the kind of schedule I used to keep and the kind of camaraderie I had with the people I worked with. And one of the things that's particularly notable about people who are artists is that they all seem to have to go through a very specific cadence, which is that they, they have to really know their sense of purpose. It has to be something that's strong because oftentimes the, the commitment is happening long before there are more external or tangible rewards. And then you have to build a community around that purpose. And what you're talking about is really to some degree losing both of those things, which is obviously very difficult. It's true. All of that is true. Uh, it's, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day and he, it's sort of like he finally realized that my whole way of life is basically, you know, disappeared. And I've tried to look on the bright side in terms of being a creative person and, and doing, you know, writing songs, um, which is something I find very difficult to do on the road. So it's taken a back seat for many years. And that's, mm, it's a loss in, in and of itself. It's, it's worrisome to me. I, um, I miss it. And there's really no better feeling for me than to finish writing a song. So I've tried to kind of use this time to do that. But you and I were, I think we we're talking before we, um, we started the podcast, you know, there's this misconception that, that artists need to be depressed to do good work, at least, you know, to a, to a large extent, that is sort of a, a, per, a perception and it's um, amidst real depression that is simply not true. Uh, it's one thing to be sensitive and to want to express yourself or need to maybe more than other people through music or prose or acting or whatever an artist painting may choose to do. But when you're truly depressed, it's not going to happen. And this has really been a struggle for me to take on this task of, of writing songs now that I've got the time to do it amidst all this uncertainty and this loss of my my way of life and my livelihood. Do you want to talk a little bit about, because you and I have spoken in the past about struggling with depression, and if you feel comfortable, we can do it. If not, of course, we don't have to. But if if you feel comfortable talking about how managing depression even further complicates pandemic life. Absolutely. I have to you know start by saying I'm fortunate enough to have gotten great treatment for my depression, which I've been struggling with since I was 19 years old. And we know so much more now than we used to about it and have so many more ways to treat it. And, you know, I'm on a cocktail of, of medicines that have really rendered me 
quite strong. And I like to say that I have a net under me, um, which is something I didn't certainly didn't always feel when struggling with depression. Now, the pandemic has brought on for me situational depression, I would call it, rather than, you know, flat out clinical depression. But it still sucks. And it takes the form of of mood swings, really. And again, I go back to stages of grief because I realize the anger, the irritation, um, the lethargy, the bargaining, the denial, and then, you know, aspects of acceptance. It's all very disconcerting when I, you know, when I was going through these mood swings and really not having a way to, to understand them, I guess I I should say. And at my worst, I really wonder, you know, how am I going to, I mean, it's been a year since I've worked and it's maybe another year. Nobody knows. And I just say, how can I go on living this way? You know, uh, having to reinvent myself constantly and come up with something to do and beating myself up for not having the energy a lot of times when I'm not the only one. I know I'm not the only one. I'm, I've been told this, you know, to be able to motivate amidst all this uncertainty and strangeness and isolation and fear. Now, I'm just kind of curious because, and I want to take us back to pre-pandemic and then now. For a lot of people, I think the way that they view their life is I'm going to, like, I have my purpose in life. And something like depression takes me away from that. And so I'm going to get better from the depression first, and then I'm going to re-engage in my purpose. Other people, when they feel depressed, say, well, I'm going to use my purpose as a way of, in effect, kind of managing the depression, whether it's motivation to manage the depression or, or doing things like music that will actually make me feel better. Before the pandemic, did you have a sense of how those things would relate? Like, did you feel like I'm depressed and I'm going to try to get out of it through things like music? Or did you feel like I just have to take care of the depression first before I can even relate to myself in that way? Um, being creative was not really an option. I was too depressed. And I mean, again, I go back to this idea that, you know, this conception that or perception that we as artists need to be tortured to create. Not true when you're talking about clinical depression. What I found for myself, taking care of the depression until it lifted had to do with connection with people and moving my body. That I could manage. I would show up to do weight training with someone almost every day. And I hated it and I didn't want to do it, but I could manage it. I could manage it. I didn't have to say a word. I didn't have to think. I didn't have to be creative. I just had to do what I was told. And, you know, exercise is, I think, a super way to combat um, being depressed. That's all I could manage. Yeah. And so it sounds like the way that it felt like for you was that this other way of connecting to yourself was just put on hold, basically. It was. I was empty you know, besieged with, with self-loathing, which is part of depression, guilt, self-doubt, and, you know, hopelessness. 
just hopelessness. And it seems like a great recipe for being able to write a song, you know, but it doesn't work like that, at least not, not for me. And by contrast, during the pandemic, that isn't what's going on. That's not the kind of depression that I'm suffering from. I can engage with people. I can show up in my writing room and get some things done. I can get errands done. I can get exercise done. I can, I can manage a lot of tasks and even some creative ones. What I find is I run out of steam. My pattern is I'm an early riser. I can manage, you know, say five, six in the morning. I can manage till about one or two in the afternoon and then I'm done. I'm done. I just can't uh, find anything to do anymore. I'm afraid to engage in a television series or read a book. I resist that. I think I don't want to make the commitment and it's hard for me to describe why that might be. It's like, I don't want to engage too deeply. It's weird. And I feel bad about that. Then the, you know, then the depression sets in and, and the beating myself up for not being able to stay engaged and active for, you know, 12, 16 hours. Yeah. And I, I don't think it's weird at all. I mean, I think that when we're depressed, you know, I, I should, I should take, take a step back. I don't think we recognize how many things that we do that relies on the fundamental faith that our mood and energy and overall well-being is going to support that decision. You know, well, so exactly. We, you know, yeah. So when we say like, I'm going to make plans with friends, like you're making that plan based on the assumption that I'm going to have the energy. I'm going to have the concentration. I'm not going to be consumed with obsessive self-loathing. And yeah. when that's taken away, everything, the, the context of everything changes. It's like, you know, saying like, hey, make plans, but I'm, I'm going to break both your legs and both your arms. It's like, I'm going to be a little bit more sensitive at this point to what I choose to do. That's very true. Very true. When you've had a respite from depression after you've suffered it. And, and I like to say for the benefit of, of people who are suffering or know people who are suffering, in my experience, and from what I've seen in other people, it does lift. It lifts one way or the other, either through medication or if that's not working. It seems to me that there are always periods of grace. And then at those times you go, oh, this is what well-being feels like. This is what it's like to be able to count on myself for that resilience and that energy and that interest in activities, uh, being social, you know, again, and I'm going to get back to the stages of grief. I, I realized, and I think this is apropos of what we're talking about. You know, if the final stage of grief is acceptance, but the beginning, you know, the very first is denial. I've realized, you know, as I've broken down during this pandemic, having various phases of acceptance, which is the hardest thing because then you're really grieving the losses, whatever they may be, I realized if we were not programmed to live in denial a good deal of the time, it's what you just said. We take for granted that we that we carry around this sense of well-being and, and ability to engage and feel purposeful. If we thought to ourselves, if we were able to think, I have control over nothing, <laughs> you know, things would not be pretty. But this pandemic has really 
really brought that home to me. I, I have so little control over so much. And we have to continue, you know, in spite of that. So, uh, I mean, we, we do have to just carry on. And when you're clinically depressed, that is very difficult. And when you're not, yeah, you, you have a will to survive and the means to, to carry on, find pleasure, you know, uh, and resilience for what is difficult. Uh, and that's just how we're programmed, I've, I've realized. We want to survive. Yeah. And I think this thing that you're saying about denial, I mean, almost our entire concept of happiness is predicated on ignorance. There's no way if any human being stopped and considered all of the things that are happening in a world right now, you know, in any world, like the, the world at large, your world, any, anything, any way that you want to conceptualize the world, there are so many things that are so overwhelming that it's just like you said, like so much of how we live is blocking that out and yes. ignoring these things. And then that question becomes like, okay, so like, what are you supposed to acknowledge? What are you supposed to ignore? And I think that one of the things that's so difficult, you know, for people with depression is that, you know, the studies show that oftentimes people who are at least somewhat depressed are actually more accurately viewing the world yes. in some cases with depressive realism. And so it's very tricky, I think, when, like you said, when you've, you've relied on denial as a, as, a, as a matter of course, you don't want to call it denial. You want to call it like, you know, because that, that brings up psychoanalytic concepts. But yeah. You, you know, say like targeted, targeted ignorance, right? It's like now all of a sudden you can't do that. There's something that's right in front of you. Like you cannot work. Now what do you do? You know, and that's, that's a tough thing. It's a very tough thing, and it's where a, a sort of a program for living comes in handy. And I'm a, a sober alcoholic, and you know the program that I have embraced um, that that got me sober, helped get me sober was it has a spiritual component, it has a day at a time overview to an extent. It what helps me is to be in the moment as best as I can, um, and to accept that there is a path. There's somehow a path. And the more we fight that path or what is going on, the harder, the harder it is. So if something difficult does come along, you know, we're in denial or however you want to, you know, whatever term you want to put on it, we have to feel that our children are going to be okay or, you know, that we're going to live to see our grandchildren or just all this stuff, things I think about at my age anyway. And if something happens, if we get sick, if something happens to our children, people survive. They survive it. And there has to be for me an overview that, and you know, that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And I think people rise to many, many disastrous occasions in spite of having to live in denial and it teaches you something there's always something to to learn and to impart you know in terms of your experience to help other people i don't know how to uh, to express it any better than that i have a, a sort of a blueprint for living that i was taught and you know, you can call it spirituality, you can call it 
cognitive behavior therapy. Um, I think that is, is very helpful to me anyway. Well, yeah. And the thing that you're talking about, it's one of the reasons why I don't like the term, which at least historically has been used in some therapy, like cognitive distortions or an irrational thought, you know, because mm-hmm. I, th- I think that, you know, some people say, well, you know, I'll never love again. And some will say, well, that's a distortion. That's an irrational thought. It's like, you, you don't, you don't know that it is, you know, you don't know, you don't know that at all. Neither of us know that. What, what I like to say to people is not whether that's accurate or not. It's just sort of like, but what's the consequence of thinking like that? Like you don't, you don't necessarily have faith in the world because the evidence is, is that the world has earned faith. You have faith in the world because you sort of say like, okay, but like, so what do you, what's the natural consequence of that thinking? Or if you don't have faith in the world and you're going to plan accordingly, what's the natural consequence of that thinking? But it's, it's yeah. like what you're saying. It's having a program that's based on how you see the world. That's more important than whether or not the thinking is technically exactly accurate or not. You know, it's that plan. <laughs> And I, yes, it's that plan. And, and like you said, it's the, what, you know, I I've been through that. You just exactly what you cited there, you know, I'll never love again. And it's a valid feeling at the time, you know, I mean, the consequence of the last time I, you know, fell in love was not a good one. So it, in a way it's a rational thought that said, I don't have the, arrogance or, or try not to have the arrogance to know what's going to happen to me. There's, there's a humility, there's a gift in, in a certain amount of humility that we, we don't know and, and we're not controlling everything that helps me. So I don't know if that's really um, apropos of what we're, what you're discussing, but. No, no, I, th- I think it's great. You know what, what I would love, and I don't know if you feel comfortable, do you feel comfortable talking about the basis of your program, because I think people would really appreciate hearing like, okay, like, so what are like my core tenets of it? Like, well, let me preface by saying, you know, as an addict, I do believe that things have to get pretty bad for an addict in order to change their behavior, to want to change their behavior, to be willing to get help. Uh, Things have to get pretty bad. So um, this concept of humility was was a necessary undertaking for me um, because stopping the, the engagement of drinking was not an easy thing to do, but I had gotten to the point where I was stuck between a rock and a hard place and continuing really wasn't an option either. So what that has taught me is when I really am spinning, and distraught and trying to solve a problem. I think most pointedly, um, this applies to being a parent in you know the last 22 years, uh, because we really can't control another person. Um, there's a concept for me that take as much action as possible, take any action you can, and then you have to turn over the results. You can only do so much. So, and this is what I try to tell my daughter when she starts spinning, you know, you can't do anything about such and such today. You can make that call tomorrow, but today you can't make it. So what can you do today? Whatever there is to do, do it. 
if there's nothing to do, if you've done everything you can, there is for me a higher power, call it what you will, you know, destiny, the universe, energy, I don't know, that I turn over the results to. I can't control everything and I can't save someone else, you know, and I believe. Other people have their destiny as well. So take all the actions I can and turn over the results. That's a big part of, of what I do to try yeah. and stay sane. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's so interesting that you say that because when I'm working with people and particularly couples, one of the things, and I do this myself, so I'm not, I'm not judging, is that people sort of go into these interactions almost like it's a like it's a, a quid pro quo business deal where it's kind of like, okay, so I've apologized, now you apologize. Or I've given a little, now you've given a little, which is which is understandable and 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 maybe to some degree it has to go that way. But the the way I kind of explain it to people is often it's like giving gifts on birthdays. It's like when you kind of give a gift, you don't say to someone, okay, so now where's my birthday gift? You know, mm -hmm. you kind of rely on that person to the next time there's a gift giving opportunity to not reciprocate, but you, you just kind of hope that that's the system in place. And when people sort of say, hey, I'm going to try to do this for someone with someone, they don't just do it as a gift often. They do it with the, okay, so now I want to see some results. And that's where all the problems come in. Yes. Is they don't just do it as a, and I, I like, I have control over the giving, but I don't have control over the results. And that is so hard, especially with something like parenting, where what happens to the other person can, can, can feel life or death, you know, and is life or death to a it certain It can way. be life or death. I mean, I've been in the position where I've had to let go to the extent that I had to accept the idea that I might get the call. And you go into couples therapy, you know, if we went into couples therapy, really taking in the fact that it may mean that we can't stay together. And that's where the quid pro quo comes in. You think you can kind of, like you said, negotiate it when it's really about, is it tenable, you know? Is it savable? What is the other, what, is, what damage has been done? Who's outgrown who, if that's the case, what is really going on? What is really going on? And, you know, you, it may not work out. Yeah. And, and being able to focus just on your part. Right. That's and, another and part of, of kind of my basis for living is clean up your side of the street. It's such a peaceful way to go, even though it's hard sometimes. Yeah. And it's, and it's so difficult because it could even happen like it just in, you know, you see how interactions come up, you know what I mean? Like you do something for someone or you, you admit a fault and then the person comes back and it's so hard to not try to control their behavior. It's just, and, and, but, and it takes all the discipline in the world to just be able to leave it there. It really does. It really does because we have contracts with people I mean, I think of my mother, you know, my contract with my mother is you're supposed to love me unconditionally, you know, <laughs> well, that isn't working out, you know, um, in my opinion, in my opinion. And, you know, it's very sad to accept the loss of 
uh, what you want from someone else, what you expect, what you deserve, you feel. And it's just, they're not, they're limited. They're limited. And we all are. And you can't squeeze blood from a turnip. And it's a loss. It's very sad. And so then the question becomes, can you deal with the person and their limitations? Or is it diminishing returns? And that's a very, that's a difficult thing, you know, is is when you stop engage, is it worth it to engage in that task of listening to each other and perhaps, you know, initiating changes? Can they be made? Can they be made, you know? Um, and wh- at what point do you say, this isn't going to change? Can I accept it the way it is? Yeah. And one of the things that I think is so tricky, because if you think about these different things we're talking about, whether it's depression or alcoholism or the pandemic, or in this case, like not getting back what you had hoped for from a relationship as you seek to not control it, which again, makes it even harder, is how do you stay as a loving person? You know, how yeah. do you stay as a person who loves themselves and wants to love the things that they do and the people around them and receive love? And part of that, unfortunately, means that if you want to be a loving person, you unfortunately have to then take a step back and say, let me look at the results of how I'm allocating that love. And let make me look choices. at the results. That yeah, is right. And that, that's, that's brutal because... I think that no, you know, people don't want to do that. It's like if you're gonna if you're gonna love, you know, unconditionally, and that doesn't mean you love someone unconditionally, but it means like you are going to be a loving person unconditionally. By definition, you are gonna ram your head into a wall on a regular basis. It's and, true. And that, and then so you have to say, like, okay, I have two choices. Like I could either stay in something in the same way that is not gratifying and, and, and very much risk that that's going to erode my ability to love, love myself and love others. Or I have to sort of adjust how much I point my love in that direction. And it's very hard when it's, when it's, you know, people who you, you had hoped that you, you'd never have to have that, that conversation with yourself about. It's very hard. It's very hard. And it happens a lot. And, um, for various reasons. I mean, sometimes we just outgrow people or they outgrow us or it just, uh, the relationship was based on something that changes. And that's a hard thing to see. And, you know, we just fight so hard to keep a relationship going in spite of maybe so many signs that it's just not going to work out, you know, it's not meant to be, or is in the case of being, you know, my, uh, my, my mother, that to me is the most challenging because family, you know, we are supposed to love our family unconditionally. And that's a tall order. You know, that's a tall order. Uh, we don't choose our families. And, you know, to to define the limitations within the family and accept them, that's a real, that's a real challenge for me. And and to your point, Keeping on being a loving person is, it's very difficult. And one of the things I've been taught, you know, in my sobriety is resentment's a killer, you know? And so it's beneficial to, to ask myself, why is this so upsetting to me? 
you know, with this person, what is it threatening in me? And how can I, how can I best let go of my anger and my resentment? And, you know, sometimes letting someone go is the most loving thing you can do. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that it's interesting you, you, you bring this up because I'm, this is a topic I've been thinking a lot about is that there's, there's such a premium on the concept of forgiveness and letting go of resentment, which I, which I think in general is a very good goal for which we should all strive. You know, like we, we, you know, it's, it's, again, it's not saying what the other person did is okay. It's, it's sort of like just releasing your own toxicity, you know, and I want to be in a world where, I can forgive people and I want to be in a world where I'm forgiven for whatever you know mistakes I make. But one of the things that I always feel like, and, and maybe I just don't know the world of forgiveness, but is is lacking from there is there's a reason why we're angry. Yeah. We're angry to, to validate ourselves emotionally. We're angry to protect ourselves in some case physically. And we're also angry to protect ourselves existentially you know, our identity of who we are and, and how we see the world. And, yes. and my, my concern a lot of times is that people are asked to let go of their anger before they've made sure that those protections are still in place. Because, you know, like if part of what would make it, you know, if, if someone is continuously hurting you, you know, in, in whatever one of these ways you could, you could let go, but, but the reason you were angry in the first place was, to protect yourself. And I, I worry sometimes, I'm kind of curious your opinion on this, that people are asked to forgive before they make sure that those protections are, are in place. Because otherwise, I think that there's like a vulnerability that then is perpetually there. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. And, I, and therein comes the concept of therapy to me, um, which I consider pretty essential exercise and practice, at least in my life, the need to examine what that anger is about, what caused it, uh, what is my baggage that is making me angry, or what is, you know, bad treatment from the other person. So that's, that's helpful to see where it's coming from. Just like you said, you know, you need some awareness about why you're angry in the first place. You need a a deep awareness of it because it is sometimes the most loving thing to separate yourself from, you know, for both yourself and the other person to simply, you can't be involved and then some healing can begin. Yeah. And, and I think that people, when you think about some of the concepts that we're talking about, you know, people talk about depression in, oh, you know, come on. It's almost like the tyranny of happiness in some ways, you know, come on, be happy, you know, don't be angry, forgive people, you know, stay connected to people. And, th- and these are all wonderful um, ideals. Yeah, but, but it's if the snap we- out of it mentality, which does not work. Exactly. And it's, and it's, it also, what it does is it, and this is getting back to the idea of what I don't like about the term cognitive distortions or irrational thoughts is that it disconnects the organic nature of why we feel things. You know, like, I think that in general, we're designed to experience these feelings as part of our, our lives in terms of functioning and saying like, Hey, there's, there's something wrong. And yeah. 
it's like you said, it's one thing to say, Hey, there's something wrong. Let me help you deal with that. And another thing to tell people directly or indirectly, there shouldn't be anything wrong. And that trend is something that has been so damaging to people. I'm glad, you know, people like yourself stepping up and like, you know, people who are prominent and saying like, Hey, we can't do it this way really helps. But that's, it's such a part of the, of the stigma of mental illness is that people say like, Oh, it's bad to be angry. It's bad to be depressed. And it's like, no, it's not. It's, 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 it's not, it doesn't feel good. And if it's part of a, you know, part of a, a process that is causes the person to suffer, obviously that's an issue, but being angry at someone because they're doing something that's not necessarily that's not good for you is, is not in and of itself wrong. I don't think. Well, there's no wrong feelings. You know, you have to start there. Don't you think the irrational or what did you call it? Um, irrational or oh, the distortions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, fine. But you feel what you feel. And if you don't start there and if someone doesn't let you start there, you're not going to process it. You know, so the judgment of feelings from yourself and from other people is just blunting, you know, it doesn't help a thing. Yeah, no. And it's, and, and similarly judging people for thinking about either disconnecting from others or connecting in a different way as though that inherently is bad is again, it puts people in a box that, that makes an already difficult situation so much worse. Yeah, I agree. I agree. That's exactly true. So with all of that, what you're talking about, all of those different ways that you approach your life, I'm just curious. So what does a day in the life look like putting those principles into practice? Good question. Um, For me, well, there's a certain amount of just trust in the the universe or the higher power to a certain extent. And you become, I mean, obviously only I can carry out the actions, you know, but for me, I've become wiser as time's gone on and I've gotten older about what some of those essential actions, you know, have to be. Um, And taking care of my physical health is certainly part of it. Um, Exercise is a habit with me. I don't feel good unless I do it. Sometimes I don't want to do it. Oftentimes I don't want to do it. Uh, but I always do it. So a day in the life has to do with, for me, getting exercise in the morning, because if I don't do it, then I won't do it at all. And again, you know, nutrition, which I pay less attention to than I should, but I've just, you know, developed some good habits in terms of some very basic self-care. As far as spirituality goes, You know, like I said, sometimes I have to feel kind of pretty uncomfortable before I remember that I can't control everything and I, and I have to kind of let the results go of whatever it is I'm spinning about. But I also stay in touch with like-minded people that, you know, follow the tenets of, of the things that I learned when I was recovering from, from being an alcoholic and, which I still consider that I, that I am. I don't think you fully recover from it. I think it's something, it's a daily reprieve, as they say. I am familiar with those steps and I practice them and I check in with other people who do the, the same thing, who remind me because it's, 
you know, just like we were talking about, only in a more specific sense, the basis of part of the sickness of addiction is is terrible denial. Um, and doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Um, so I have to keep in, as they say, fit spiritual condition. And I do that by connecting with other people. That, to an extent, is my higher power. The, the people that I know and have bonded with who have are recovering through the same tenants, you know, program that I'm recovering in. There's power in that. It, you can't do all of this alone. We're not meant to deal with life all by ourselves. And there's power in group wisdom. There's power in uh, therapy. There's a power in that. So I stay in touch with people who are like-minded. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I've found just working with people and talking with people is that, you know, when you talk about the thing about unconditional love that many of us don't necessarily get from the people, you know, we, we hoped would, would deliver that there's, you know, there's something in humanistic psychology, unconditional positive regard that in theory is supposed to be delivered by the therapist, but where, you know, no matter where you're at, it's clear that the person has positive feelings about you, you yeah. know, in some way. And if you want to call that love, it's it's a form of love, let's say, but obviously in a therapeutic context, that becomes a little trickier. But one of the <laughs> things that I feel like that I think that recovery programs can deliver, whether it's specific individuals or the program in general, is that there's this sense that, listen, we're always going to be here. We're always going to kind of take you where you're at and try our best to help you. And that is such a powerful feeling knowing that it's there with specific people, but also just as a, as a program, you know, that that's just so hard for a lot of people to get in their lives. That acceptance of accepting you where you are. Well, just the idea that, I mean, in some ways, you know, quite frankly, it's what a lot of people look for in certain kinds of music scenes. You know, this idea that like wherever you're at in your life, you could show up to a show at, you know, a given place, maybe there's you know, a specific genre of music and you could just be there and enjoy the music, you know, mm -hmm. having things that sort of consistently are there and deliver a good feeling. And I think that when it comes to recovery, so many people, when they experience alcoholism, sort of feel at some point like, okay, I'm, I'm not going to get this from other people. You know what I mean? I'm not going to get this from my world. Sometimes people are judgmental or sometimes people don't understand. Right. But having right. those people who say, hey, listen, that's why there's a program. That's why it's not just a, oh, you, like you said, you got better and now you leave. It's an ongoing thing that's always here to give that unconditional positive regard to let you know, like, hey, we see the human part of you, even when you're not feeling that way. You know what I mean? Even when you're feeling- like some people with addiction, they feel like they've, or mental illness, they feel like they've lost their humanity in some ways. And that's such a powerful, powerful, powerful effect, I think. Agreed. And it, it's, for me, it's based in this notion that you really start over every day or even every hour. And um, the acceptance is it, with 
within the addiction community for where you are at the moment is, is vital to me. And, you know, a disease like alcoholism or addiction in general. So you take alcohol as the substance, you just stop that one. I mean, I'm not saying it's easy at all, but you abstain a hundred percent and you take other substances like food or money. Um, and I, you know, I believe the addictions come in all forms and those are a lot trickier and it becomes even more vital to me, you know, in my struggles. Cause I, you know, I struggle with, you know, sugar addiction and man talk about humility. I mean, I have to start over many times, many times I have to, I have to regroup and be where I am. And, you know, it's a new day. And I think that that's one of the things that, you know, in the stuff that you're talking about and how you're approaching your life, you know, you're setting out, at least what I'm hearing is what we all struggle with is like, how do we set up that unconditional love for ourselves? And again, unconditional yeah. love doesn't mean unconditional like. You know, it doesn't mean that, you know, in the same way that forgiving someone doesn't mean that it's okay what they did or that when we forgive ourselves, it means it's okay what we did. But there's just this, this acknowledgement of, Hey, I'm still here. I'm still worth something. I still deserve to try. And, you know, I, I know from the times that you and I have spoken, I've always been struck by that and how, how powerful that has, uh, has been from you. I don't know if it feels that way, but it comes across when, when we talk. Uh, that's, that's great. I, I'm glad it, I'm glad it does. I, there's an element of self-talk that has to go on, but again, you know, that's important, but we don't always believe ourselves, you know, depending on how, how poorly we're feeling. Um, the necessity of perspective from the people that I am closest to I had someone tell me, you know, I have this thing going on where I'm 65 years old and the pandemic has hit and talk about, you know, feeling not purposeful or not relevant even, even though I don't have the opportunity to be particularly relevant, but you know, that it's over and I don't have the goods anymore and I'm washed up and I can't write. And, you know, I had someone say to me recently, you know, more than you ever have. You're wiser than you've ever been. You've got more material than you even know. You, this hasn't left you. If I didn't have the perspective of those that are closest to me, know me the best and are like-minded I just, we can't do this alone, you know, and, and the therapeutic relationship, you know, it's okay for me to, to pay someone who's trained to challenge me, reflect what I'm saying. It's pretty vital. It's pretty vital to me. Yeah. And it's so important, I think for, and I appreciate your honesty about that because, you know, one of the things that I think a lot of people will report is that oftentimes it's our our rock stars that were that for us, mm. you know, that when we felt like nobody understood us and yeah. we didn't have anything to offer, it was, you know, you put on a record, at least what used to be putting on a record, you, you put on a record and you're like, okay, 
I don't even know if we're, if, if what they mean is what I'm feeling, but I know that somehow I feel like I've gained perspective from listening to this, you know? And so just knowing that, that the person who delivered that for so many people, even they can wonder themselves, I think is very validating in the sense that like, Hey, like so many of us, everybody goes through this, even the people who you would think would be so far beyond that just because of what they've delivered in our life. Like, you know, like Sean Colvin doesn't need anyone to, to validate her. Sean Colvin's the one that's been validating me for all these years. And so I appreciate you, your, your honesty about that because I think it'll help people realize like, Hey, when you're down there, it's okay. Like you're not the, you're not the only person who has felt that way. Even, even our, our, you know, again, our rock stars can feel that way sometimes. They can. And, and I mean, it's the beauty of art and, and music for me, especially there's the best songs are to me are the ones that we can project our own experience into and feel, we feel completely understood and that someone is speaking our truth and our emotions, whether it's, you know, anger or people think they know me because of the stuff that I've that I've written and that's okay. You know, they may not, but that's, that's okay. And one of the things that heartens me is that maybe I've been of some help, you know, cause, cause being an artist is sometimes feels like a very self-absorbed sort of, you know, exercise. I mean, I wrote a, a memoir and I, I felt completely out of my depth with that endeavor but what finally got me to two things got me to attack it and finish it. One was that I find my own voice in the writing and, and there would not be a ghostwriter. I wanted to sound like me. And I found I was able to achieve that at least um, to my satisfaction, but also that maybe I could help someone. Yeah. And it's like, I mean, look, I, I, I'm not really sure. I even know what, you know, what Sunny came home is about. I don't know, but I well, know, that I know, how I, felt, I don't I even know, know I, what that's about. Yeah. But I know, but I know how I feel when I listen to it. And so, you know, and, and I look, I, I know, and I mean, that's, that's part of also, you know, what's, what's difficult in relationships is so many of these sentiments are conveyed indirectly. You know what I mean? I will say this though, and this is something, um, I, I don't know if you and I actually talked about, but I know that when we first uh, talked a few years back, I know though that I got a lot of people writing to me when you were talking about the struggle of just getting from the bed to the sink mm-hmm. in the bathroom. I know that there were a lot of people who then said, yeah, yes, that and and the idea that it was like you being willing to say it and articulating it that way was a light bulb for a lot of people because people didn't, people was like, yeah, like when, when she said, I get it. It's like, I didn't know how to explain it to people. So I, I definitely think it's, it's registering for people, whether it's through the music or through your writing or through these kind of interviews. I mean, I feel like, you know, people, people hear it. It matters to me. And I think it matters to a lot of people. I just think it's invaluable to, it's not everyone's responsibility or even their proclivity or what they're obligated to do. But for me, with the things I've, well, parenting, addiction, depression, uh, art, when I hear experience from the people who have 
when they convey their experiences because they've got having gone through it themselves that's the most valuable thing to me um to have a a psychopharmacologist has been essential in my life to understand what's going to help my clinical depression but it's william styron's darkness visible book that gave me hope because he understood not because it was a tied up in a neat bow and he's, you know, skated through it and got better. I mean, he did get better, but in his own time and in his own way, but the comfort I feel from someone who knows what it's like to be an active alcoholic or knows what it's like to be in the depth of depression, that has been the most valuable thing to me as far as giving me hope. You don't feel alone. Yeah, because it's like, what if all of those horrible things that I felt, what of those like terrible things that maybe I've done or at least thought about doing, what about mm-hmm. all those things that I've experienced that make me feel so not human are the actual thing that makes me human? What if the things that I think disconnects yeah. me and isolates me are, are, are the things that actually connect me to everyone? And, and sometimes you can't, you can't get that by having someone say it directly. You got to feel it. You know, you got to feel it. And if someone else admits to it, that's just, you know, like I'll say right now, and this is, I'm going out on a limb here. You know, I've had some difficult years parenting and, you know, my daughter wouldn't mind me saying that, um, you know, fortunately, but, and she knows this too. There were times when I was so at the end of my rope and so despondent and so unsure of what was going to happen um, that I just wished it wasn't, I just kind of wished the whole thing would disappear. I just kind of wished that this relationship wasn't even around anymore. You know, it was that bad. And of course, in the depths of my soul, that's not what I, I just want to relieve. I just wanted relief. No, but that's that feeling, you know, that's what people who contemplate a range of things, ending relationships when people are, are contemplating, you know, maybe harming themselves a lot of times when you mm-hmm, ask them, it's mm-hmm. like, well, I don't, I don't actually want this to end, but, but this, this has to stop somehow, whatever this yeah. is, you know, this pain, this suffering, this, and no, and I, I very much appreciate it because I don't, I think that most parents know what it's like to care about something so much and so much and so much. And then it's just at some point you're like, I, I, the pain, uh, the pain of caring that much yeah. about another human being when you can't control how they are or what they do is overwhelming. I, I don't, I it's don't know overwhelming. many parents, you know. Yeah. And you can't stop, you, you're not going to stop caring with that one, you know, you want to, um, but it's not going to happen. So you're really in a, in a pickle when uh, I had a friend who said, I've broken up with my teenage. (laughs) She said, I broke up with him. And she really did kind of take a step back for a while. She's like, just do what you want. You know, I'm giving up for now. I can't, I have to take a break, you know, from having, uh, trying to influence you or, 
or reel you in or uh, so I always thought that was that was a good one you know I'm breaking up with you <laughs> well <laughs> which of course she didn't do ultimately but no but it's it's it what it speaks to to some degree it's like what we were saying before and like you know it's this idea of reorging your relationships in a way that that may make it work a little bit better and sometimes taking a little bit of a step back when you're saying I'm breaking up with you it's like okay I'm not obviously I'm still your parent but it's like I'm no longer going to try things this way like yeah. it's like you know I'm going to I'm going to let you do things the way that you want to and again it sounds so stark like oh breaking up with your kid but but in some ways it you know it's very much consistent with this idea of what we've been talking about about just being willing to kind of evaluate and reevaluate our connections so that we can actually continue to be loving towards ourselves and others because look relationships parenting family it really you know when you care that much about stuff it can really just suck the life out of you and sometimes sometimes you got to take a step back and if it sucks the life out of you, you've got to do something because then you're no good to anybody. And yeah. sometimes stepping back is the most loving thing to do for everyone. Um, and of course, when they're very, very small, the children, that's not particularly an option. But to allow our growing children to experience failure and pain, we don't like that. You know, and I've really had to learn that I'm not doing my 22 year old daughter any favors by trying to do her tax return for her or, you know, by continuing to sort of infantilize her and and just to take a step back and and let her succeed because she's resourceful. She's grown up and yeah just taking a step back and and if you're exhausted and played out you have to reassess you know and and chances are you're not doing the other person any good either well i think uh, i'm looking at the time and i unfortunately i think we have to stop but john honestly i cannot tell you it's so great talking with you every time we talk it's it's just fantastic i get so much out of it i really appreciate well thank you, you. i i'm really gratified to hear that i i uh, i'm glad i'm really yeah. glad that makes me feel great so there you have it Sean Colvin talking about her approach to managing depression and alcoholism as she works towards her purpose-driven life as an artist. I really appreciated Sean once again being so open and honest about her struggles, particularly as it pertains to her relationship with her mother and her daughter. And I think we can all learn a great deal about how Sean takes on these difficult issues with her combined approach of open-mindedness and action. I want to thank my wife and Hardcore Humanism co-founder, Island Booman, for producing this podcast, and my brothers in Odd Zero for letting us use Odd Zero music. If you like what you hear in the podcast, go to our website and sign up for our weekly newsletter. And if you'd like to take the next step and make change in your life, check out the Hardcore Humanism therapy and coaching program at hardcorehumanism.com. So get at it, Hardcore Humans. See you next time.